Tonight's thought. I always have this general anxiety over these glass bottle cokes that you have to open with a bottle opener. Like, I've got one here right in front of me, and uh, it's not that I can't open it. Okay, I can. I know how to open, you know, a bottle uh, with with a bottle opener. Of course, it took a little bit of figuring out. Uh, you know, there's that scene in uh, in the movie uh, Back to the Future where uh, the kid who goes goes back to 1955, back to the past. You know, he's uh, he's there with his dad, and I think Marty's the kid's name, played by Michael J. Fox. Uh, he he's holding a glass bottle of Coke there, and he's twisting it you know and he's really working that thing and he's like spitting in his you know fingers i don't think he does that but you know just trying to open the the thing and then his dad who's like a geeky klutz throughout the whole movie you know can't do anything right stumbling and goofing around through that entire movie just uh the one cool thing he does in that entire movie you know is he takes this glass bottle coke and he just puts it in this uh, screw-mounted bottle opener and just, you know, pops it right off for him. He's like, there you go, and he hands it to Marty, and Marty has, like, this moment where he's, like, respecting of his dad because his dad actually knew how to do something that he didn't. Okay? And when I first seen that movie, I was, you know, six or seven years old. I had never had a glass bottle Coke before. Uh, Coke had come out in cans years before I was born, and by then that was the standard thing, to drink Coke out of cans. And when you couldn't get a Coke in a can, you would get a Coke in a bottle, in a plastic bottle, right? And it was sometime around, uh, I guess, Coke, I don't know when Coke and glass bottles became like a novelty, but there was some point where it became a real novelty to get a Coke. And I don't think I'm the only one imagining this. Um, Because I would go to friends' houses when I was, like, little, and they would always have these commemorative glass bottle Cokes on their shelves. You know, commemorative glass bottle Cokes that would have, like, Paul Bear Bryant on them. They weren't commemorative glass bottle cans or glass plastic bottles, right? They were, they were glass bottle Cokes. And when I was uh, in 12 or 13, I remember going shopping with my mom one day. And uh, we were going to the Santique Mall. And in the back of the Santique Mall was this uh, deli. And she said, oh, Mike, look, they have glass bottle Cokes. Do you want me to get you one? I, I don't think you've ever had a glass bottle Coke. So she bought me one. And I think I still have that glass bottle Coke to this day. I mean, I drank it, of course. And it tasted delicious. It did not taste like it came from a can or a bo- or a plastic bottle. Right? So, 
she gave me this, and uh, I drank it, and I put the empty glass bottle on my shelf, just like I'd seen all my friends do. So having a glass bottle was something that was very special, it seemed. And so today I will, I have glass bottles pretty much, pretty much exclusively. That's my preferred way of drinking Coke. And I hardly ever really even drink Coke anymore. I used to drink it all the day, all the time. Because when I was in high school, there was a, there was a can machine there in the cafeteria and I would get one every single day and have it during seventh period. So. So I had this glass bottle uh, Coke right here in front of me. This is uh, the first one that I've had all week long, um, I think. And uh, the first glass bottle Coke anyway. And so when I look at this thing, I get some anxiety because I've had moments where I've gotten glass bottle Cokes, my number one way to drink Coke, and I've gotten them in public, like at gas stations or, or, or with, uh, with lunch when I go out to, to a restaurant to have lunch. And I don't know if you're young, like I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. I don't consider myself young, but I guess I kind of look young at least to some of the old people who give me these comments when they see me with a glass bottle Coke, they'll say like, Oh, do you need me to open that for you, Sonny? Like they won't say Sonny or anything like that. They're not like cartoon characters, but they will basically say that. Like, I can't believe you know how to open that. You know, I take the, the, the glass bottle and I put it in the screw top uh, bottle opener and I just pop it off, right? And they're surprised that I know how to do that. <laughs> and uh, and I was at uh, I was down the road the other day at a at a at a hamburger restaurant and I saw that they were selling these uh, Mexican glass bottle cokes, which are just Mexican cokes. I guess they're with like out fructose or something like that. I don't know what the what what the difference is. Other, other than they, they come from Mexico, you know. Um, they seem to be something from Mexico that we like to let into our country these days. Oh, man, that was political. Sorry. <laughs> so I saw that they had a Mexican Coca-Cola, so I went down and I got it out. And this woman behind me saw me uh, going up to a bottle opener to open it up, and she's like, what, you can't screw that off yourself? I'm like, what is this? Like, no, it's it's a. I mean, I guess I could try, but uh, why? <laughs> it's like uh, suddenly opening this thing became like a test of strength or something. Like, uh, but I guess what I'm getting at though is that um, there seems to be a, kind of a metaphor here for glass bottle cokes, um, and uh, specifically the ones where you can't twist the lids off. Like, I don't think this one. I think you can. Maybe you can twist the lid off. No, you can't. No, no. This is a. Uh, I got to use a bottle opener for this, so you know you gotta you gotta twist this thing. Um, you gotta you gotta pull it off, right? I'm having a hard time talking tonight. Excuse me. So let's let's open this thing up here. Yeah, see there it is. Just use my Swiss Army knife to open it up. And uh, but the point is, like I guess, like kids. Or, or something, they're, they're not supposed to know how to open these things up. It's like Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Uh, they're supposed to prefer the quick MTV way of opening Coke. You know, the cans or the screw-top bottles. You know, the wimpy kind that makes the Coke taste bad. I, I don't know what it is. There's something going on here with these... Uh, 
there's some kind of metaphor wrapped up in these cokes here. I don't know. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. Welcome. Welcome into the studio tonight. Yes. Back in the studio after a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks off. Of course, there had, I, I did do a, uh, a podcast this week, not from the studio. It's the first episode of the summer that I did, uh, just in the field, sitting on the porch at my parents' house on the back porch looking out into the dark Alabama night, listening to all the crickets and frogs and cicadas. And uh, just talking about whatever, whatever came to my mind. That was a good show. I enjoyed that. Uh, I like doing field shows uh, aside from studio shows because studio shows seem very formal. Like right now I'm I'm at a, you know, two computers and I've got another computer here to like monitor my sound and, and my live stream output. And I've got this new mixer here. Yeah, my school was going to throw away this like mixer that they had in the uh, in the auditorium. They just didn't need it anymore. So, uh, yeah, they just gave it to me way back in October. Of course, I'm a teacher. So, uh, you know, I was there in my classroom. It's been in my classroom since like October. And I was cleaning out my classroom this week, preparing for like a social distancing school year and just saw this mixer. And I was like, I wonder if I could plug that in to my USB uh, mixer. And uh, and yeah, it seems to work pretty well. Let's try the music here. Let's fade up the music. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to work okay. All right. There we go. <laughs> so... But nevertheless, it is a very formal way of doing a show. Um, not something I'm incredibly crazy about. Sometimes it is just fun to turn on a, a Zoom recorder and just uh, start talking. But I do like doing uh, the studio shows because they do allow me to do uh, live streaming. And I, and I am live tonight. If you're watching live right now, I welcome you in. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you here in the studio on a Saturday night. At 11.31 p.m. Central Standard Time. Of course, you can uh, comment. We've all we've got some comments coming in. Look at that. We got uh, we got Evil King listening to us. We got Paul listening to us. Welcome so much, guys. I appreciate that. Already talking about the glass bottle cokes. <laughs> I'll read some of those in just a minute. <laughs> so, yeah, though this is a this is a fun studio show uh, that we're doing tonight with a new mixer and a lot of stuff planned for you to come ahead. I've got music, I've got uh, videos, and I got a story that I wrote especially for tonight's show. So stick around. <laughs> Getting down tonight. Yeah, but there, there's quite a generation gap going on these days, and, and I've just opening this Coke bottle tonight got me thinking about it. I guess that's the thing about getting older is you almost just can't do anything anymore without it reminding you of something, <laughs> without it making you think about something much bigger. Am I the only one who does this? I'm sure that other people do this too. 
just walk around and everything makes them, you know, just gets them off on a train of thought. And um, I've, I've recently heard that, that there have been studies done that some people walk around and literally do not think about anything. They've got, it's just like silence in their brains. Essentially what they are is just fully functional robots that can go to the bathroom. And um, I, I don't know where that study is. I, I don't know. I just heard somebody quoting a recent study that was done by like, uh, I don't know, like at MIT or Johns Hopkins, or maybe it was like, uh, maybe it was like, uh, I don't know, one of those online universities. <laughs> Like the university of like, uh, I don't know, homeschool or something, you know, but, uh, but yeah, almost anything I do now just gets me thinking about just something that's much bigger and much more, uh, I don't know, much more analytical, but I was thinking about just these Cokes and, uh, and, and how they kind of represent a a generation gap. And you remember like in the eighties, Pepsi their slogan was Pepsi is the choice of the new generation. So it suddenly became like, um, almost like a, a statement of youth, you know, to drink, to drink soda. And, uh, and I mean, I guess that goes with anything with advertising. I mean, advertising is really always trying to aim toward the young people, the ones who are making money and they don't really care about how they spend it, you know, who care about status, uh, things like that, you know, but what I was thinking about is that it just seems to me like like my, my parents are in their 60s, and they have been adults to me my entire life. And I know that that sounds obvious, but what I mean is, you know, I'm older than my dad was uh, when I was born. My dad was in his early 30s when I was born. And so I was fully conscious and aware of my father. You know, uh, when he was the age that I am now. And what I was thinking about is, as I said, I was on the porch. I was on my parents' porch this week, uh, sitting out there. And um, a friend of mine came over and we were sitting out there and and we were just talking about like all these different things like movies and, and, and what's going on in the world with this, uh, you know, coronavirus crisis and, and things like that. But mostly we were just talking about movies. Okay. And I was just thinking about like my dad and uh, when I was growing up, all of his friends who would come over and sit on our porch and they would have beer. My dad didn't drink too much, but you know, his friends would. And my dad smoked cigarettes until I was about 10 years old. So they would smoke, you know, and my friends and I would be over there and we would be like shooed off of the porch so they could talk about adult things. And this always sound very, sounded very alluring to me. Oh my God, what am I missing out on? What adult things are they talking about? And, and I really don't know. I don't know if like this is something that all children have always thought of their parents since the beginning of time. You know, did they, did they look at their parents like I did and wonder what is so adult? What are they talking about? You know, they, they would send my friends and I off to go and play and uh, Indiana Jones or RoboCop. And, and we would talk about Star Wars and things like that uh, up in our rooms and, 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 and all that. And then they would be on the porch talking about what? What would they talk about? I mean, like, you know, I know there are certain stock adult topics like uh, how much are you investing in your 401k? 
you know, what's your golf score? You know, there are certain stock adult topics, and and I've certainly talked about those from time to time. Not not really the golf thing. I'm I'm not a big golfer, but uh, but we do talk about them. And um, but mostly what we do is we, my friends and I, I, I guess we're just adult children. We're the same version of ourselves as 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 adults as we were as children. You know, we sit on the porch and we may not play like we're Indiana Jones and uh, Sala or whatever. We may not play like we're uh, like we're Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, but we we definitely sit on the porch. And we still talk about these things. You know, my parents were not talking about the port, uh, talking about Star Wars sitting on the porch. You know, we, uh, so there just seems to be this, uh, weird thing where my parents have like always been adults. Whereas me and my friends, we, we just seem to be grown up versions of our childhood selves. And, uh, and while I definitely think that we are adult and we have adult responsibilities that we do not shirk. We still have these childish, immature sensibilities and, obs- and obsessions. And I, I have a couple of theories as to why this is. I think that one thing may be because we are, uh, pop culture has grown up with us, okay, in a way that like video games were very new when we were children and video games have progressed in ways that we've remained interested in, you know, video games are not something that we collectively as a generation gave up. Like we still play, you know, video games like, uh, you know, we, we still play these grown up versions of the games that we loved when we were kids. There's also movies. Um, you know, the way that, you know, star Wars came out in 1977 and, and I think like, uh, on a recent podcast, I called Star Wars the 9-11 of pop culture. Not that I meant that it was like, I didn't mean that in a bad or offensive way. I guess it, I, I meant that it, it started this war that we're still fighting to this very day. So... You know, we're just grown-up versions of the kids that we used to be. You know. So, and the you know, here's a good example of just uh, the mix of the mixed bag that we are as adults. Okay, so uh, the the last week I was teaching summer camp, and um, which you know I'm a teacher, and during the summer I get a chance to go out and make a little bit of extra money and teach in a different venue and. Just kind of hone my, I, I look at it as a way, not necessarily just as money, like as extra income. Uh, I look at it as a way to just, you know, go and just stay fresh during the summer because you can definitely, as a teacher, go away during the summer and lose that edge of being in front of children and constantly having to be creative and, and inventive with your lesson plans. And you need to, you need some way to stay sharp. So teachers really do need to go and teach during the summer. Uh, just as a means of you know, professional development, of getting better at what they do. So, I was teaching summer camp, and uh, on the very first day, I was super busy, we went in, and of course we're teaching during this coronavirus crisis, so I had my mask on, and it was like 90 degrees in the building on the first day, and uh, I just was like, I, I had been dreading 
teaching with a mask on for the last four months. I, I fortunately, my school shut down and just like all the other schools in Alabama and we had to uh, go and teach online. And that's the one thing I've been really grateful for is that I haven't had to teach with a mask on in front of a bunch of kids and worry about social distancing. Well, all that got thrown out the window a couple of weeks ago because suddenly I had to go in and teach with a mask on and I had to worry about social distancing. So I had a lot of anxiety about it and I was just running every which way. Okay. And I have a friend and I'm not saying anything bad about him at all. He's a great guy. I've known him for years. He was in my wedding. Okay. But I, <laughs> I have a friend who every five seconds was sending me a text message that was buzzing in my pocket. And I was opening it up and he's like, well, I've got all these kids running around me and I've got all these professional responsibilities I'm trying to deal with. I get this text message from my friend that says, can you believe that Disney Plus is calling it Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Like what? I close my phone, deal with kids left and right, trying to get them excited about things, about about theater because we're at a theater camp open up my phone again when I get a bit of a break. He's like, I mean, Indiana Jones is one of the Raiders. It's not and the Raiders. So, <laughs> and so again, I'm not, I'm not shirking my responsibilities. I'm waiting till I have a break, but I'm still texting him this argument with like, well, I know, but you know, it's kind of like Robin Hood is one of the merry men, but he's their leader. He's the leader of the merry men. So I get, you know, and as long as it's Indiana Jones I mean, and, and, you know, the kids see that it's Indiana Jones, who cares what the title is as long as they get to watch it? These are, these are arguments. I mean, these, these are like no better than, you know, who do you think will win in a fight, Superman or Raphael from the Ninja Turtles? My God. is this i feel like i'm in fao schwartz all of a sudden let's get some different music here oh my gosh it's like uh playing that giant keyboard there <laughs> that's better oh yeah Evil just brought up a, a good point on the uh, on the on the comments on the live stream. He said that uh, I said the other night that uh, Episode One of Star Wars was like nine eleven, uh, and that it's a war that we're still fighting. We're still fighting the uh, war of trying to make a good uh, Star Wars uh, sequel or prequel or whatever. Okay, I stand corrected. See, that's why we have comments. That's why I do live shows, right? So I could say stupid things and then be corrected. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, I don't know. And just to think, all of this started with talking about a glass bottle Coke. My goodness gracious, this is good, though. I wonder if there were midnight citizens of 100 years ago, you know, recording into their wax cylinders these types of thoughts. I don't know. I hope this uh, mix is okay for you guys tonight. 
Again, you are hearing a live show, so uh, I may have to go in afterwards and do some post-production, get everything kind of uh, evened out a little bit. I'm doing the best I can. But thank you so much for sticking around tonight. I gotta say, uh, by the way, I found out something interesting and kind of spooky. Last last summer, my wife and I took a, a trip up to Niagara Falls in New York. We went to the Canadian side, too. Uh, but to go to Niagara Falls, the quickest way from Birmingham, Alabama, you have to go through Ohio. And my wife and I are big national park fans. We, uh, we love to visit you know parks within the Department of Interior you know, the National Park Service. And and, and a couple of years ago, Jessica got me this uh, National Park Passport book, which I have down here. Essentially what you do is you you go to all these different national parks and you go to the visitor center and they give you a stamp so that you could show that you've been there. So, like, I've got stamps to, like, uh, places like uh, in Boston on the Independence Trail. Yeah. So, like, I went to Shenandoah Valley National Park, walked on the Appalachian Trail, got stamps there, there, and there. Blue Ridge Parkway. Uh, Of course, we have a couple here in Alabama. We have the uh, Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument, which I went to. So, so I love doing this. It's like this kind of nationwide scavenger hunt. You know, you go visit all these national parks, you get stamps. So last year, my, my wife and I uh, were going through Ohio, and we realized that we're going through the Cuyahoga Valley. And I didn't know that there was a Cuyahoga Valley National Park. I knew that there was a Cuyahoga River. And I think I'm saying that right. Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga. I don't know. So the Cuyahoga River uh, famously was so polluted that it, it, it caught fire in, uh, what was that, Cincinnati? Is that right? Cincinnati? Or was, no, that was Cleveland. Cleveland, Ohio, the uh, Cuyahoga River caught fire because it was so polluted. And that was in the, I believe that was the 60s. And I don't know what you do to a river when it catches on fire. I mean, you can't just throw water on it, right? But I don't, you know. So that that was my knowledge of the name Cuyahoga, is that it sounded vaguely Native American and it caught on fire at one point. But there's this place called the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, which is, uh, to my knowledge, I think that's the newest national park in the Department of the Interior System. It was made a national park in 2000. And we went and visited it. It was very nice. It's, it's in this place called Boston, Ohio. And uh, like a lot of places within the Department of Interior, the national park had to essentially... Uh, clear most of the area out in order to make a national park of it, which is always an obviously controversial proposition because you're talking about relocating people and using uh, imminent domain. Uh, So last week I was uh, watching TV and this show came on the travel channel called, uh, it was like a documentary called Helltown, Helltown USA. Up all night. No, no, it's just Helltown, USA. <laughs> right? So, 
I'm watching the show and it's like all about, it's like really scary. It's all about kind of, there's all these urban legends and, uh, these, uh, in this place called Helltown, <laughs> And, uh, there's all these, uh, satanic rites and rituals and sacrifices that allegedly go on there. And there's like monsters that live in the woods. And it's just this really, uh, horrible place. And I was like, man, who would live in Helltown? That sounds terrible. Turns out that nobody lives in Helltown. They were all moved out in the 1970s to make room for, you guessed it, Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Who? boom, there it is right there. <laughs> I would fade up the music, but I just turned it off, so whatever. So I, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I was like, what? You mean I went to Helltown? That's insane. That's crazy. I went to a place called Helltown, didn't even know it. It looked really pretty. Like we, we parked at a visitor center and we got the, we got our national park stamp right here. You know, we, um, we walked down to a waterfall. I mean, it was a really beautiful place. There are all these nice buildings that were restored and and everything, but yeah, apparently what happened is, is that all these people, they, this land wasn't made a national park until 2000, but all these people who lived there in Boston, Ohio, uh, they they were they were moved out in 1974, and so I guess the big conspiracy theory is like, why did it take? What is that? What? Why did it take 26 years to make a national park? And I guess they were thinking that there's something that the government was wanting to get them out for, kind of like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when like the government comes up with like an anthrax spill in order to clear out the area so that the aliens could land. I guess that's kind of what they were thinking. <laughs> so, but I, I went to Helltown. I couldn't even believe it when I was watching this thing. Um, yeah, let me, uh, let me read this thing. This is on Atlas Obscura right here. Here, I'll even put it on the, uh, on the live stream here so you can see it. Oh, look at that. Best swimwear. Man. All right. It's distracted by this ad for swimwear. Okay. Uh, Helltown, Ohio. Um, the tragic reality of a town riddled with rumors of haunts, chemical spills, and serial killers. And uh, here's a bunch of um, pictures of Helltown right here. So you got the, the road closed sign where it looks very ominous. And then you got like a bridge with a bunch of grass under it that's overgrown. And, and then there's this church there that I actually did see. I didn't notice this that there's actually like, um, there's a crucifix, not a crucifix. A crucifix is the one that has, uh, Jesus on it, but, uh, there's a cross, you know, on top of the bell tower. And then under the bell tower is this very curious upside down cross. It looks like just like, I think it's just structurally there. It's like just to kind of keep the, uh, keep the structure intact, but it looks like an upside upside down cross. So I guess that that prompts rumors of, uh, Satan, satanic cults or something, but yeah, the abandoned, it says the abandoned village now colorfully known as Helltown is purportedly teeming with crybaby bridges, spooked school buses, mass human sacrifice scenes, and a mutant python for good measure. The extreme folklore surrounding the region, formerly known as Boston, Ohio, is ironic since the only verifiable legend about the town is that it is deserted for a very frighteningly tragic reason. So founded in 1806, Boston Village's original claim to fame was its standing as the oldest village in Summit County. 
Boston's relatively uneventful life took a turn for the worse in 1974 when it became the unlucky victim of nationwide anxiety over the country's disappearing forest land. So using the laws of eminent domain, President Gerald Ford signed a bill that gave the federal government's National Park Service jurisdiction to expropriate land for the establishment of a national park. So yeah, so it was just like the Cuyahoga River. It was so polluted that the government had to take it over and uh, essentially reclaim it uh, as forest land and make it a national park. So uh, the sentiment among citizens who had no choice but to leave their homes was expressed in a message scribbled on the wall of one of the houses. Now we know how the Indians felt. So there are a bunch of no trespassing signs around. Um, the remaining buildings, remnants, remnants of a vanished town, have created a fertile soil for the innumerable urban legends that have popped up over the years. The hellish aura of the area only continued to grow when the NPS acquired Credge Sea Dump in 1985. Rangers visiting the site became ill and covered in rashes. It was soon discovered that the dump was highly polluted with toxic chemicals improperly disposed of. The dump became a Superfund site, and as of 2015, the NPS is wrapping up restoration of the area. This is the place that I thought was so beautiful. This was honestly one of the high points of our trip on the way up to Niagara Falls. Uh, There are a number of myths surrounding the vacant properties, but some have been a bit more durable than others. There's the Presbyterian Church, which is said to have been built by Satanists, complete with upside-down crosses. Why would Satanists build a Presbyterian Church? Uh, I mean, that's nice of them, but... The abandoned bus is said to be host to lingering ghosts, and maybe most outlandish of all, there's talk of mutants who were created by the dump spill, including a monster snake known as the Peninsula Python. What in the world just happened? All right, I got kicked out of the website because I'm not paying for it or whatever. Uh, but yeah, there it is. Uh, it's Helltown, USA. And there's a... Uh, okay, so there's this video that was created for this documentary. Of course, they say in the documentary... I should say, by the way, that the documentary is that I was watching on the Travel Channel is total BS. Essentially, what somebody did was they they took all these urban legends of Helltown and they... <laughs> And they, they made it into like a found footage movie for the Travel Channel or like, you know, a fake documentary or whatever. So this is a video that uh, where this teenager was supposedly attacked and killed by this monster on camera. Um, let's see if we can get this here. Oh. All right, well, that's it. Uh <laughs> So yeah, this girl was apparently uh, attacked and killed by a monster, um, and then that sort of prompted all of these cryptozoologists to go in and look for this python under a pile of trash or whatever. So, (laughs) you know... Of course, you know, once again, total BS... But it's fun to know that I went to a place where there are all these urban legends and uh, monsters. And, uh, you know, the article said that there were serial killers. I didn't catch that in the article. I didn't see any serial killers being talked about in the article. But, well, so it's uh, Boston, USA, other ne- otherwise known as uh, Helltown, USA.
know when you uh, don't drink Coke for a while, it really does lose its taste, doesn't it? No. All right, I'm going to take a break for a minute. I'll play some music and be back in just a second. You're listening to the Midnight Citizen Show. Thanks for being in tonight.
the wall when I should be sleeping. A death pillow won't break your fall when your back comes raining. All my life, wanna things to be alright. I'm right here and you are out all night. Everything I do, I do for you. So, 
Welcome back to the studio. Got some good music there just now. I hope you enjoyed it. We started out with uh, the song called State of Mind by the Crepulators from a self-titled album. The album is not called self-titled. It's self-titled The Crepulators. And then you just heard Out All Night by the Riptones from the album Extra Sauce. So both of those albums, by the way, uh, both, both, both those songs you just heard, they are Creative Commons. And uh, you can get them on the freemusicarchive.org. You can use them in your own projects, your own podcast, your own films, anything, as long as you attribute them, which um, I just did. So there you go. give you some reference it's a little after midnight here studio beautiful saturday night here in birmingham alabama we are uh on the air right there this week i actually got to get out and uh do things which uh is strange My wife and I have been stuck at home all summer. Well, we've been stuck at home since the spring. And a lot of people uh, remember that one very brief moment in like mid-June where where people actually kind of thought that this whole thing was over. This public health crisis of 2020, hopefully only 2020. Now they're saying that movie theaters may not open until mid-2021. So... And that's not the crisis. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine without the movie theaters right now. And I know that there's a lot... That's kind of a controversial opinion. But, uh... But, but this week, I will tell you, though, I went to the, uh... I went to the drive-in. Twice! Twice I went to drive-in movies. And I haven't been to the drive-in in a couple of years. And, uh, this is a great time for drive-ins. It really is. The summer of 2020 may be forever remembered as the summer that brought, uh, drive-in movies back. So, because it's a way to sit in your car or around your car and distance yourself from other people and not inhale things from their respiratory system and take off your mask for a few minutes and uh, just enjoy the open air and a good movie. And what's even better is that there haven't been any new movies released in theaters since March so all these drive-ins are suddenly showing, uh, they're showing some new movies, like they're showing The Invisible Man, the Invisible Man and, uh, and the Trolls movie, which are like the, the two last movies to come out in the theater. But a lot of them are actually showing older movies. So, you know, this week, on Monday, I went to go to the drive-in, uh, I went to the Grand River Drive-In in Leeds, Alabama. You can see a bit of a video of that on the Facebook, uh, Midnight Citizen Facebook page. The Grand River Drive-In out in Leeds, Alabama used to be owned by uh, this uh, company out of Texas called the Coyote Drive-In. And they only had three in the entire world. They had two in Texas, and they had one here in Alabama. And uh, I loved the one that they had here in Alabama, out in Leeds. And I, I went there to see pretty much every single movie 
for about three years. You know, you take your car out there, you get your lawn chair, you sit it out there, you sit in the... Like my wife and I, we have a CRV, so we're able to kind of put up the back of the car and just sit in the, sit in the back of it and watch the movie. You know. And uh, then you just turn on your radio and you just, you've got a movie. And it's, everything about the drive-in is cheaper. You know, you're, you're not spending 30 bucks for two people to go to the movie. You're, you spend like, um, I think it's eight bucks a person. Uh, to go to to go to the show and then the uh, so that's sixteen dollars and then if you want to go get concessions I mean they're ridiculously cheap I can't believe how cheap uh, the popcorn and the coke was I think I got like a small popcorn and a coke for five bucks at the Grand River Drive-in you know and yeah my friend Jason and I we went to the drive-in on Monday night we saw um, Jurassic Park at the drive-in. I already talked about this on, on, on the show that I did earlier this week, so I won't talk about it again, other than to mention that uh, last night, Friday night, I, uh, I went with my wife to go see another drive-in movie. And this time we uh, took about a 90-minute road trip to go to, uh, I believe, what I believe is the oldest drive-in that's still standing in Alabama. I'd have to check my facts on that, but I think that's true. It's called the Blue Moon Drive-In. Usually I, I like check, checking facts, but it, it, it seems like I could just, you know, you could go and take my word for it on this one and do your own research, okay? But the Blue Moon Drive-In, I believe, has been there since 1957. And the last time we were there was about six years ago. And uh, we saw The Conjuring, I remember. And I was so surprised to see this movie, The Conjuring, at that drive-in because it was it was an R-rated movie. And and I'm not I'm not trying to get hung up on uh, movie titles. I know on my show, on the last episode of the show, I talked a lot about R-rated movies. And the summer of 1999, when I turned 17 years old, and I was finally able to go see R-rated movies. You know, I don't want to get too hung up on R on on movie ratings, but. This was a big thing because for years I had really wanted to see an adult movie at the drive-in, you know, like an R-rated movie for adults at the drive-in. And I just didn't think that they did that anymore. Because that's almost what, like, shut drive-in theaters down in the 70s, is that they they just have become these seedy places where families no longer went. They were these seedy places for beer-drinking, pot-smoking, redneck hoodlums. And, uh watching pornography and a lot of these drive-in theaters got cut down closed down because they would just show pornography on these like giant screens that a family of four could see driving down the uh the highway there in their cadillac on their way back from a top-notch hamburgers (laughs) and uh so they became these seedy places and then sometime, I guess in the 80s, or maybe not even the 80s, but the 90s and even early 2000s, the drive-ins that were still open, they suddenly converted to basically being just nothing but family-friendly movies. You know? Movies that were essentially not rated R, they were rated no more than PG-13, and you know you would take your family to go see them. And I understand, you know, drive-ins, they have to serve a functional purpose nowadays. You know, these drive-ins, like the Blue Moon Drive-In that we went to, is out in the middle of the country. It's, it's about 50 miles from the nearest movie theater. You know? So these people, they want to go to the drive-in to see the new movies that are out. They don't go for nostalgic, retro uh, 
feeling. But that's kind of why it's perfect, though, this Blue Moon Drive-In, because they show the new R-rated movies that are out. So that's that's why I couldn't believe that we were seeing this R-rated movie like six years ago at the at the drive-in, at the Blue Moon Drive-in in Goo in Alabama. And I remember, I think I did a show after I saw after I saw that 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 movie because I remember um, there are these two towns next to each other outside of Hamilton, Alabama. One is called Gouin, G-U-I-N, and the other is called Gouin, G-U hyphen, W-I-N. It's these two towns next to each other that have identical names. They're just spelled differently. And apparently they were one town at one point, and one group of citizens wanted it spelled one way, and the other group of citizens wanted it spelled the other way, so they split up. That sounds like a ridiculous Garrison Keillor Tales from Lake, Lake Wobegon tale but apparently it's true so again don't take my word for it just do your own research so so yeah we went to uh jessica and i we we went last night uh to to see twister at the blue moon drive-in in goo in alabama and uh this movie is uh i, I you know i don't really care about this movie that much uh, it is a movie that i did see Way back in uh, 1996, 24 years ago when it first came out. And I, I did indeed really like it. I love that movie when it came out. Uh, since then, I've recognized that it's a movie that, like, basically, if you took all the movie tropes from the 1990s and put them in a blender, you would end up with Twister. Maybe that's not appropriate. Like, you took all the movie tropes from the 1990s and threw them up in an air in the air and a tornado funnel picked them up and spun them around then you'd end up with twister you know <laughs> this movie about these uh, people who chase tornadoes and try to put this uh, ridiculous goofy looking device up in the funnel cloud so that it'll advance the tornado warning by a few minutes and of course I live in Alabama I know what it's like to 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 stare down these tornadoes and I know how important warning systems are. They're very important. That being said, the movie's very silly, and, and the way that they treat the science of tornadoes uh, is, is movie logic 101. <laughs> but, like, for instance, okay, so they have this, uh, they have this Dorothy, you know, this uh, little freaking trash can uh, with all these little sensors in it that uh, they look like these little balls that you get out of these vending machines at like a Chuck E. Cheese, you know, that have a prize inside. <laughs> but apparently they have these sensors. They're like these sensor balls. And they go up into the tornado and they, they measure wind and stuff. I don't know. Now, even back in 1996 when I first saw this movie... What was I, like, 14? I, I think I remember turning to my friend Clayton there in the movie theater and saying, like, what happens when the tornado's over? Do those things just come back down? Yes, they just become debris. Just as dangerous as any other kind of debris. It's not like they dissolve in midair like cotton candy. In your mouth. So, that didn't make much sense to me. 
Okay, so at the end of the movie, what they, 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 they're having a hard time throughout the entire movie getting these sensors to open up and fly into the tornado. They keep on, you know, tipping over and falling and all that onto the rainy ground. So finally, what they decide to do is they decide, like, oh my gosh, we just got to give them a little bit of uh, some wings, you know? So, so they cut out, they take all these conveniently Pepsi cans, because Pepsi was a big sponsor of this movie. They take all these Pepsi cans, they cut them up. These aluminum cans, all right? Which, by the way, you know, those aluminum cans are a lot more dangerous than these glass bottle bottles. Okay? Uh, I mean, you can really hurt yourself on those things if you cut them up and just leave them lying around. Um, And so they get them, and then they string them in there, and they basically are like, you know, they, they catch the wind, and then they swirl around. And what's so funny is, is that when they finally get these things to swirl around, it, it reads back on the computer, it looks like a Pepsi logo. Uh, again, you know, you come out of this movie really wanting a Pepsi. <laughs> but that's even more dangerous, because when the tornado's over, you just got the, all these, like, these thousands of swirling balls with, like, these sharp-ass uh, wind catchers on them. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, it's just a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous proposition, but I don't know, I guess it works for them in the movie, so that's good. It is a fun movie, though, and it was fun last night seeing it the drive-in, because as you know, if you've seen the movie, there is a drive-in scene in the movie. Uh, these people are at a drive-in, watching the movie The Shining, which when I first saw this movie, again, when I was 13, 14 years old, I did not know about The Shining. I had no idea that this movie existed, but it looked a lot scarier than the one I was watching. <laughs> I was like, who is that crazy freaking guy on screen with an axe trying to kill his wife? Yikes. So I would not find out what The Shining was for another couple of years. That's kind of the number one rule of movies, you know, that you don't break, is you don't, you know, you don't, uh, you don't show a good movie in the middle of your subpar average movie. Especially don't show a good movie if it's in the middle of your crappy movie. So anyway. But last night, you know, we're watching this movie, The, Sh- the, the Twister. And the scene in the movie with The Shining, where the tornado comes and blows down the drive-in movie screen. As Jack Nicholson is trying to kill, you know, his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall. This... The sky is like occasionally around us lighting up with lightning. It's like an overcast night, and we actually catch a kind of a pretty decent storm on the way home. I was really thinking that, my God, man, this would be the most meta thing ever, you know? Like, I would be living inside of a postmodern novel uh, if the screen showing Twister blew down during the scene where the screen blows down. That would be kind of crazy, right? I don't know. Yes, of course. Let's not forget that uh, Twister was, of course, written by uh, Michael Crichton, the writer of Jurassic Park. Uh, Known for basically taking some 
real science ideas and then putting them into high, far-fetched fiction. So, uh, Michael Crichton was really, like, just uh, kind of one of my biggest influences in the 90s. I love Jurassic Park. It did not escape me for a second when I saw Twister that he wrote it. That's one of the reasons I saw the movie, one of the reasons I liked it so much. It, it did capture my imagination, even though it is a silly, ill-thought movie, but there it is. Yes, like, oh my gosh, oh, what is this right here? Holy cow, what? Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, a podcaster in Birmingham, Alabama, has his podcast mysteriously removed from YouTube after playing copyrighted music. Where did it go? Stick around. You may be able to help solve a mystery. This music, um, Unsolved Mysteries, terrified me when I was a kid. And I don't know about you. I wonder if, like, any adults, anybody who was, like, over the age of maybe, uh, let's say, 18, 19, let me know if if Unsolved Mysteries uh, spooked you as a kid. Just this music alone. Uh, It is, it just elicits this uh, feeling in it. I don't know what it is. Nobody can, I, I think that there are probably, like, entire Reddit message boards dedicated the Unsolved Mysteries theme song, and it is probably, for my money, the number one scariest theme music of all time, and probably one of the number one scariest shows of all time. And, uh, you know, uh, Filmrise, which is this uh, distribution company, they they put out, out all of these old uh, Unsolved Mysteries, going back to, uh, you know, 1988 or something, whatever it is, when the show first came on. Of course, it was hosted by Robert Stack. He had this trench coat, and he would always be in these, like, uh, dark alleyways looking like the human version of McGruff the Crime Dog. <laughs> and, uh, and he would always, you know, tell you about these uh, mysteries that are unsolved, these, uh, as we would now call them, cold case files. I mean, Unsolved Mysteries was really the first show, the first true crime show that brought you all these currently unsolved mysteries. And, uh, and it always seemed like exploitation. I guess looking back now, it it was just a scary show. But thinking about it, it, it was uh, it was an exploitative show. But it actually did perform a public function because all of these unsolved mysteries episodes that they air now, they have updates on whether or not these mysteries have been solved, and in many cases, they they have been. That was always the troubling thing about watching unsolved mysteries because I remember I used to sit in there in the living room and I would watch it with my mom and after it was over and that creepy ass music would come on she'd be like okay Mike time for bed you know and she wasn't joking I would have to go into a dark bedroom and sleep and I would always think that like the the criminals that uh, you know rob banks or murder people or 
and who the show they they always show like a creepy sketch of them you know with giving you a number to call in case you see them i would always picture them right outside my window looking at me yikes (laughs) um that was the creepy part of that show is that those people are still out there somewhere D.B. Cooper is still out there somewhere or something like that, you know. He jumped from an airplane and survived, and now he's coming after me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Unsolved Mysteries was always just a, uh, a terrifying show, and uh, and I've been putting these old episodes on recently because thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm an adult now, I can deal with it now. No, every single night that I put on Unsolved Mysteries... It's still every bit as kind of scary as I remember it being. And I don't know if it's like that same effect of like, if you watch The Wizard of Oz, how The Wizard of Oz scared you when you were a kid, and it still scares you today because you have like those memories of how much you used to get scared by it. Um, I don't know if Unsolved Mysteries, if I would, if I was going to see it new today as an adult, if it would still scare me as much as it did when I was a kid, but, uh, but it still does. No, it, uh, it, it, uh, every night, uh, last week that I was watching Unsolved Mysteries, you know, I, I, I went to sleep and I, and I woke in the middle of the night having nightmares. I had these terrible nightmares. It really does, uh, plant something inside of you that is dark and unforgiving. Kevin just asked, how old was I when Unsolved Mysteries was on? So, Kevin, I was, um, so if the show came on in 1988, what was I like? I was six when that show came on. But I would say the, the prime years that I was watching it with my mom, probably 1990 to 1992. So between, you know, eight and ten years old, which is way too young to be watching that show. I can't believe my mom let me watch that show. Um, I mean, some of the shows I still can't watch today. There was an episode of that show on the other night that I was watching where these people like robbed this bank and then they taped the bank manager to a an office chair and they threw him off of a bridge into a river to drown. That's not a good thing to show a kid. I'm really indicting my mom. I mean, she was a good mom. She just maybe shouldn't have showed me Unsolved Mysteries, I guess. Besides that, she was okay, so... So Kevin said that the theme was uh, was scary, but it, it but it, it, the show itself did not scare him. So I don't know. So all this is to say, though, Netflix has just brought back Unsolved Mysteries, okay? And uh, they came out with a very short season of six episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, and of course the music is still there. The the theme music is still there, which is very scary. But other than that everything about the format of Unsolved Mysteries that for me made the show work is gone. And everybody that I've talked to about the show says the same thing. Uh, they say, where's Robert Stack? Well, of course, Robert Stack's dead. But, uh, you know, and I know they brought it back, you know, in the late 90s, they brought it back with uh, Dennis Farina, who's also now dead. Uh, Dennis Farina, of course, is an actor who started out as a cop in Chicago. And, uh, you know, had great roles in movies like Get Shorty and things like that. Uh, but that was the thing that really did make the show. It, the the, the uh, overdramatic narration 
made the show on top of the theme and the reenactments that were not bad for what they were. I mean, they, they had very poor production value. It was basically like watching like a, uh, like a B movie, a B crime movie, which was fine. Um, so it was that, and, and uh, just the general uh, feeling of curiosity is missing from the new show that they put out on Netflix. Uh, there's not really a feeling that this is Unsolved Mysteries at all. You know, when you were watching Unsolved Mysteries, when it first came on, there was like this feeling of they're out there somewhere. And uh, I, I, I can be, I could solve this mystery. In many cases, like a lot of people who are watching the show did solve the mystery. You know, go to the Unsolved Mysteries wiki for this. You cannot believe how many people have been caught basically because like, like you'll, you'll see story after story where it's like this person was caught 15 minutes after they, uh, after the show aired. There's this one case that actually happened here in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, where this uh, professor over at Samford University that I pass almost every single day to go to work when we don't have the coronavirus. Uh, He murdered this kid on his debate team because the kid wasn't doing a good job at debate. He went over to his apartment one night in these... uh, these apartments actually pretty close to where my parents live i'm pretty sure i actually knew somebody who lived in there one time and this was back in 1989 and uh and yeah this like the this debate coach just murdered this kid that was on his team because he wasn't a good enough debater or whatever i guess he came into his apartment and said you know give me one good reason why i shouldn't kill you and the guy couldn't give him one so that's that was pretty insensitive i shouldn't have said that so anyway so apparently the guy killed his student and then ran. And I was reading the wiki on it. Apparently 15 minutes after uh, the show aired, the guy was caught. He was like living in Mississippi and a neighbor was like, hey, isn't that Bob? You know, I don't know. I mean, that, that's probably not exactly how it went. But. So that was the interesting thing. There was like this urgency on Unsolved Mysteries. Like on the news, they have Crime Stoppers where they say that these people are still large... Unsolved Mysteries was the show that took these crimes and they put them into dramatic context. These crimes that had just happened, like maybe a month or two before the show actually aired. And it was performing this public service. And with this new Unsolved Mysteries show, like, I mean, each episode is devoted to one mystery. And so they're like an hour long. And it's got that typical, very dramatic Netflix production value to it where everything is super glossy and there's all these drone shots that fly over the dark woods of Mississippi or whatever. Right? But there's like this lack of urgency in the show. And honestly, what it feels like, it just feels like these true crime shows that Netflix has become famous for. You know, making a murderer or something like that. Or, uh, I mean, we live in a golden age of true crime right now. And I think like, uh, there's a lot of these people who fancy themselves like citizen sleuths who just kind of spend their time combing over genealogy and ancestry.com and trying to solve mysteries and, and, and this kind of feeds a lot into this true crime obsession that people have right now. True crime podcasts and all that. So I guess what I'm saying is that Unsolved Mysteries when it came out in the late 80s it, it was groundbreaking. Nobody had ever really seen anything like it and it, it served this very real public function and public service. And um, 
And now that we've got like a million shows out out there like it, um, it's it's not really special anymore. So again, it could have just been any kind of cold case files type show. And I, I don't understand why they had to call it Unsolved Mysteries. Like there there was really no reason to call it that. You know, to put that music in there. I mean, I guess they were just trying to... See, here's the weird contradictory aspect of the show. Is that, on the one hand, you've got this very serious true crime show that's really giving you these heartfelt, unsolved mysteries. One of them is about this woman who goes missing. Another one is about this uh, kid who may or may not have been the victim of a hate crime. So... It's not exploitative at all. Like, it's very tastefully done, right? But on the other hand, they've got the Unsolved Mysteries logo there, which I guess is simply there to make people think, oh, this is something that I used to love when I was a kid. So they're playing on that nostalgic factor, so it is exploitative. And in that, it kind of feels wrong, you know? Like... Why couldn't they have taken these stories, just put them under a new brand? And uh, and I don't know. I mean, I would not have watched the show if it had not been called Unsolved Mysteries, you know, because I I wanted that theme. I wanted uh, I wanted uh, you might be able to solve a mystery. I didn't get any of that. So, I'm going to go away for a minute. I'm going to play a video for you. Uh, We're going to go down to the Video Street Video Store and watch this video, and I will be back in just a minute. You're listening to the Midnight Citizen Show at mikebooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. is an exclusive presentation of Videotape Systems. And now, a VTS special presentation. And now, VTS brings the world to you with a 1982 World's Fair from Knoxville, Tennessee. In the next three hours, VTS will take you on a tour of the fair to show the customs and technologies of many lands. The theme of Expo 82 is Energy Turns the World. Energy touches every aspect of life, whether it is in the production of food or the manufacture of products. Expo 82, by giving a new understanding of energy, its wiser use and more efficient production can help promote new and higher standards of life in less developed countries while maintaining high standards in nations that now enjoy them. Now first, let's visit the center of this 72-acre site, the U.S. Pavilion, a five-level exhibit costing $12.4 million. Here you can find 33 talkback computers to pursue various subjects on energy with information carefully screened and edited from over 400 industrial films. This new process was made possible by Sony of America's LaserDiscs, the software of Apple Computer Incorporated, and touch-sensitive screens of Elo Graphics Incorporated of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. 
From the U.S. Pavilion and almost every area of the fair, you can see the 266-foot sun sphere glistening in the sunlight. Below the sun sphere is this turbine using curved rotor blades made of aluminum attached to a rotating vertical tower which allows it to accept wind from any direction. A motor base is used to start the turbine and the wind keeps it going. In this way and many others, aluminum can perform many energy-saving functions. With its recyclability, aluminum can be used repeatedly, saving 95% of the energy otherwise needed to make new metal from ore. Aluminum is used in many cars and trucks to save fuel. It clads many skyscrapers and keeps beverages and helps preserve foods. Here in the U.S. Pavilion, you can talk and shake hands with robots and see detailed video displays of energy production including coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear power, hydropower, biomass, geothermal, solar, and other forms of energy such as wind power. You can see tools and artifacts from each of these industries and even enter a transparent house to examine energy-conserving features that can be added to existing homes. The pavilion also provides a look at the history of America's changing roles of energy resources since the 19th century. Seen here is enough computer wizardry to fascinate both the serious student of energy and the inquisitive child. Additionally, at the U.S. Pavilion, you can see the fabulous IMAX Theater with a $1.2 million film shown on a screen 65 feet wide and 90 feet high. From the U.S. Pavilion, we take another glance at the Sun Sphere, and then it's off to the AEEE, the American Electric Energy Exhibit. The theme is Electric Energy, Key to a Better Future and it focuses on ways utilities are working to meet the needs for increased amounts of electricity in the future. Nuclear energy, of course, plays a big part in this exhibit, and various displays tell you about it, like this one about high-temperature gas-cooled reactors, HTGRs. The Fort St. Brain Plant on the System of Public Service Company of Colorado is now demonstrating the advantages of the HTGR on a larger scale. A still larger HTGR plant is necessary to bridge the technological and institutional gap between Fort St. Brain and the needed commercial HTGR industry. The American Electric Energy Exhibit is sponsored by the Breeder Reactor Corporation, a nonprofit organization of 753 utilities throughout the nation. Also featured is a model of the plant and a description of the way in which a breeder generates electric power while producing more fuel than it consumes. There are also futuristic exhibits, displays of products and services consumers can use today, and other developments for home, office, and industry. Now just outside the AEEE is the power of the fair from the Knoxville Utilities Board. Well, you know, the World's Fair is a big place, but you can always keep track of where you are with the information booths located throughout the fairgrounds. Throughout the 72 acres of the 1982 World's Fair, 19 different nations are represented in the international pavilions. These pavilions, with pictures, films, slides, artifacts, and video extravaganzas, exhibit their progress in their use and conservation of energy, their customs, and their technologies.
nations, such as Korea, actually bring structures to the fair. And others, like Saudi Arabia, actually bring a strip of their homeland so that you can see it. I guess that was it. Just cut off very randomly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, World's Fair. Okay. Ken. This is God. Quit playing with yourself. Help. I'm in a mine. I'm stuck in a mine. Help me, Elon Musk. having some fun with effects. This new mixer I have. Welcome back to the Midnight Citizen Show. I hope you enjoyed that video. That cut off very abruptly. And speaking of cutting off very abruptly, this is Mike Booty. Uh, about 12 hours later after recording what you just heard, there were... Uh, a ton of audio problems on that episode, to say the very least. And um, I do apologize for those. And, uh, yeah, no, I recorded a whole story, probably about an hour or so, of extra audio after what you just heard. And there was music playing through the whole thing. I could not hear the music on my end, but... um, there it was. It was playing through the computer, and I guess I just did not pick it up. So this is the second week in a row, the second Saturday in a row, where I've had just immense technical audio issues. Uh, I'm not going to sit here um, at midday on a Sunday and record the entire story over again. But you can read it. It's a great story that I worked on very hard about two girls at the... Uh, at the expo in Viscaga, Alabama. So you can indeed read that. It's about two girls who, uh, go to this Gravitron type ride and they get on this, you know, thing and they spin around in it and try to essentially unbuckle themselves and pull themselves around it while gravity is forcing them back. It's a good story. I'm not doing justice right now, but anyway, so, in the spirit of going ahead and just releasing things and just trying to just get them out there into the world, I'm going to go ahead and release this episode. And if you're listening right now, if you had the stomach to deal with all of the mix that was completely off up until now, I really do appreciate you being a true devoted Midnight Citizen listener. Thank you so much. You know, I'm dealing with uh, this new piece of equipment this week that I guess I just did not fully understand. 
And I actually don't think that it was the mixer's fault. I think it was just, uh, it was this open broadcaster system where I record my audio. Well, I record my video and it allows me to live stream to YouTube. And it just, uh, it crashed on me last night. I don't know what else to say. It, uh, it, it did something that it's never done before and it, it just mixed the audio poorly. Um, in a way that I could not monitor it myself live. So I, you know, I'm going to have to figure that out and do work on that this week. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'll get back to recording shows next Saturday, hopefully with all the bugs worked out and you can read this week's story. It's called, uh, surfing the hangman. At MikeBooty.com slash writing. So anyway, yes, until next time, yes, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Keep your eyes open.